Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. at university that um, as we become more advanced, as we become more educated, we become more secular. Um, and of course, the guys saying that were themselves very secular, so they were sort of patting themselves on the back for being progressive and sort of ahead of the curve and so on. But it actually didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. As we um, have gone on, we've actually become more spiritual and more religious as Things have advanced. And, you know, initially guys were sort of scratching their heads, you know, the clever guys, and like, what's going on? But eventually they sort of abandoned this idea of secularization and, and just realized it's not true. You know, people are actually becoming more spiritual, more religious. But there has been a, a significant shift that has happened. Our society has become more pluralistic. That just means that there are more faith options in the, in the marketplace of religion. And whereas 50, 100 years ago, the question was, will I believe or not? Because pretty much for most groups, for most cultures, there was one faith option. If you were Italian, you were going to become Roman Catholic. If you were German, you would become Lutheran. If you were Indian, you would become a Hindu. If you were Pakistani, you would become a Muslim. You know, so it was, you know, am I going to believe or not? But now the question is not will I believe or not, but who will I believe in? Which God will I believe in? Because there are multiple faith options all of a sudden. And we live in a global village. The internet has made the world so small that everyone has contact with everything. And all these faith options are available to everyone in the marketplace of religion. And the question is no longer, will I believe or not? But as in Elijah's day, which God will I believe in? Because in Elijah's day, the two main options were, were Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, and Baal. Uh, the guide, the God of Phoenicia. And Elijah's name actually means, comes from El, which means God in Hebrew, and Jah, which is the shortened version of Yahweh. So Yahweh is God. So his very name represents his message, which was, no, Baal is not God, Yahweh is God. And in our society, it's very similar to that. Now, some of you might say, but, but hang on, you know, do you even have to make a choice at all? You know, can't you choose to be an atheist or uh, agnostic? Yes, but I mean, even that is a faith option, right? If you think about it carefully, because if you say, okay, I'm not going to trust anyone else to be God in my life, someone still has to do the things that a God needs to do. Someone still has to decide what's right and wrong for you. Someone still has to control the stuff that you cannot control. Good luck with that. <laughs> and, and just from my side... Um, I'm not very comfortable with that. I wouldn't like to be the general manager of my universe. I don't trust myself nearly as much as I trust God. <laughs> okay? But even atheism is a faith option. You know, it's, it's a form of religion. A secular form of religion, but a form of religion nevertheless. So, the question is, and um, actually... It's stated here in the beginning of 1 Kings 17. I just want to read that first verse. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So the question is, who is the living God and who are the dead gods? 
Who is the true God and who are the fakes? Who is the real God and who are the idols? Who is the authentic God and who are the wannabes? That's the question. And Elijah can help us with that. And he helps us quite powerfully uh, with that. So we have to answer the, 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 the question, who is um, the living God? Now, you, know, you might also have some people saying, you know, you know, but then aren't all religions sort of the same? You know, they all look alike to me. And I always say, you know, because I've heard this sometimes being said, you know, that's like saying, you know, uh, my wife is black, by the way, but all black people look the same. No, if someone says all black people look the same, it just shows that they don't know very many black people very well, you know, because if you don't know people, then they look all the same. But if you know, you know, a, a whole bunch, if you have a whole bunch of friends who are black and you know them well, you're going to see, no, they actually don't look the same, you know. And it's the same with the religions. You might, you might say, well, all religions are the same. Well, the people who are part of those religions will say to you, no, you know, actually, it's just because you're seeing us from a distance that we look the same to you. But actually, if you look closely, you see we're very different. All religions are not the same. All faith options are not the same. So you have to make a, a choice. So let me just also, just in closing of my introduction, say this one thing. This is actually a very, very practical que question. Who is the real God and what is he like? That's a very practical question. Some of you might say, no, hang on, Andy. That sounds very theoretical and theological to me. I don't know how, how practically. It, it really is practical. If, think about this. If there is a creator God and he created everything, Whenever you create something, it reflects who you are. So what you believe about God will determine what you believe about everything else. What you believe God is like will determine what you think people are like and how you treat people. And whether you even think it's worth being in relationship with people or whether it's worth bringing new people into the world, you know, having children. Like A.W. Tozer, the famous author, says... What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because everything else about you is determined by that question. Who you see and think God is. So this is really a very practical question. Everything else in your life depends on this. So um, I'm going to just read this passage in 1 Kings 17 from verse... Um, let me read from verse... Let me sort of catch up with the story. I, last time I, I preached, so if you want to go and listen to the recording and, and sort of catch up on that, it was just a story of how Elijah is fed by the crows and then God, the brook dries up and God says, go to Zarephath, which is in Sidon, in, in the kingdom of Phoenicia. And there he meets, uh, God says, I'll instruct the widow to take care of you. He meets the widow at the gate of, of the city and she takes care of him. And there's this famous story about the, the flour being multiplied and, and the jar of oil, the oil being multiplied and it not running out until the drought is over. And we, we sort of catch up in verse 17 at the end of that. It says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took, he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he, where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing a son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let the boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry 
And the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that... Lord, it's ancient wisdom, which was true when it was written, and it's still true today, Lord God. And thank you that we can come and learn from it, Lord, and learn about you, Lord God. And we pray, Lord God, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and teach us, and that you'll change us through your word, that we'll go out better than we came in, in Jesus' name. So I, if, if you look at this story, death hangs like a dark cloud over this story. You know, the, the woman at one stage, uh, you know, when Elijah first asks her for water and for bread, she says, you know, I'm just gonna, gathering a few sticks. I just have a little bit of flour and oil. I'm going to bake some bread and then, you know, for my, myself and my son, and then we're going to eat it and die. It's pretty morbid, you know. And then the, 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 the son does get ill and, and he dies. And... Um, she asks Elijah, in a man of God, have you brought my sins to remembrance? Have, have you caused my son's death? And then, of course, eventually the son is resurrected. So, so death hangs like a bit of a theme and a cloud you know, over, over this passage. So we're going to look at four things um, related to death. Firstly, the cause of death, what causes death, uh, the nature of death. What does this passage teach us about what death is and what it's like? The test of death, and I'll explain that a bit later, and then the cure for death. So let's, let's jump in. So... Um, the widow's statement reveals some implicit things about us. She says, let me just read that verse 17 and 18 again. It says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, and finally he stopped breathing. And I, it sounds like, you know, it, this happened over time. He grew worse and worse over time. It didn't happen like suddenly he became ill and he died. This happened over probably a few weeks and months that he became worse and worse and eventually died. And my, my thought while I was reading it was, didn't Elijah notice it? <laughs> you know, surely he noticed the guy was becoming sick, but, you know, first the child had to die before Elijah did anything. But anyway, I don't know. This is a question I have. It's not, I don't have an answer for that. But <laughs> in verse 18, it says, she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? Man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And I think a statement there is very telling. There are a few things implicit in that statement. The first thing that is implicit and that's clear from a statement is that she's guilty of sin and she knows it. She doesn't deny that she's guilty of sin. She, says, she doesn't say, uh, you know, I'm innocent, you know, why has my son died? She says, have you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She assumes that she's guilty. She knows that she's guilty. Now, we don't know what the sin is, what she did, but we know that you know, from what she's saying, that clearly there was sin in her life, and she accepted it. She didn't deny it. Okay, that's, that's number one. Number two, it assumes, uh, Elijah's response actually, because he goes into the upper room and he says, well, God, did you bring a tragedy upon this widow also that I'm staying with and by killing her son? And Elijah's response actually assumes not only that this woman is guilty, but that God judges sin and has the right to judge sin. Now, this is something we're a little bit, as modern people, sometimes uncomfortable with. We like a warm, fuzzy, 
teddy bear, Santa Claus God, who's a good, good father and who just does good, good things for us, but not a God who hates our sin and judges it. Right? It's true. Let's be honest. Our culture is even a bit sort of against that and, and a bit grating against that. But think about it this way. Think about it this way. If sin and evil and oppression and all those bad things never get judged, what kind of place will the world be? If murderers and rapists and oppressors always just there was never any judgment upon them, the world would be a pretty terrible place to live in. Right? I mean, they, they, if there were no consequences, they'd just, you know, oppress and murder and, 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 and so on with impunity. And, and everyone would suffer. Here's the thing, that, that's on a corporate level. But on, a, on an individual level, a God who doesn't hate your sin can't save you from it. Any God who doesn't hate sin and judge sin is no savior from sin. And notice what Elijah says. He says, have you brought tragedy upon this widow also whom I'm staying with? What does he mean with also? Think about that for a while. The bigger context is God judging not only Israel for their idolatry, but through the drought, the whole region for their idolatry. He was bringing tragedy and people were dying because of the drought. God was severely judging the whole region. And now what Elijah was saying is, I already accept that you judge sin because you're doing it all around. But have you brought tragedy on this widow also with whom I'm staying because of her sin? And it, that question actually assumes that God has the right, even the responsibility, to judge sin. And that he is already doing so. Thirdly, the woman's question is, she says, have you brought my son to remembrance and killed my son? She, the assumption is that the, the rightful judgment for sin is death. Death. And with this, the rest of the Bible agrees. God says to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which I commanded you not to eat, in other words, if you sin against me, you will surely die. And then in Romans it says, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and with sin came death. And in Romans 6 verse 23 it says, and the wages of sin is death. And number four, and this one is a little bit surprising. The widow's question assumes, because remember what she asked. She says, have you brought my sin to remembrance and killed my son? It assumes that if she has sinned, someone else can die for her sins. That's a little surprising. Because, I mean, it's not the son that sinned. She says, have you brought my sin to remembrance and killed my son? She, of course, conveniently forgets that if God had not multiplied the wheat and the oil, she and her son would have died in any case. <laughs> and if God is the giver of life, and especially if he's the saver of life, then that life belongs to him and he can take it if he wants to. So, it tells us a bit about the cause of death. What is the cause of death? Sin. That's how death came into the world. Death wasn't part of God's original plan, but through sin, death came into the world. 
But it also tells us a little bit about the nature of death, which is also a bit surprising. Let me just read verse 21 to 22. Let me see if I can find it here. Here we go. It says that Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Now, the, the NIV translation that I'm reading from here obscures the meaning of the text a little bit. Because the word translated their life, let the boy's life return to him. Or the boy's life return to him and he lived. The, the word life there is the, the, the Hebrew word nefesh, which actually means soul. Let the boy's soul return to him. Okay, And you can actually see it in the text. Even in the English text, if you read carefully, it says, And the boy's life returned to him and he lived. That's a redundancy. His life returned to him and he lived. He's saying the same thing twice. What it literally says in the, in the Hebrew, so, so that sort of, sort of warn you there's something going on there, it is his soul returned to him and he lived. Now what does that tell us? You see, as many modern people who are materialists only believe in the material world, you know, what you can um, register and um, examine with your senses, your touch, your, your taste, your, your sight, your, your hearing, all that kind of stuff. Many modern people are material. So many modern people only believe in the body. Human beings are, you know, glorified biological reactions. You know, that's, that's it. You know, it's, it's just the body. It's just the part you can see. But what this passage tells us is, no, that's a very superficial um, view. A very shallow view of what human beings are like. Human beings are more than just the part you can see. It's more than just a physical thing. So there's a, there's a soul, and it says his soul departed from him. It left him, and then it came back after Elijah prayed. So it says that human beings are not just a physical, um, visible part that you can see, but it's also, the, it's not just a physical, material part you can see. It's also the, the, the immaterial part you cannot see. There's a soul, and later on in Scripture it tells us a spirit. And, and when your soul and your spirit leave your body, you die physically. But what this says is that your spirit and your soul can also be brought back to your body so that it lives again. So that tells us that death is reversible. Death is not the end. <laughs> Or to quote, uh, I think it was, was it Churchill or, or Benjamin Franklin? I always get confused with him. He said, um, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning. Now, of course, he was referring to something else <laughs> regarding the war. But I want to use it about death. Death is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning. Right? And it's reversible. In fact, all people will rise from the dead again. Some to eternal life and peace, and some to eternal condemnation. But death is not the end. My friend, it is not the end. This also tells us something a bit about the test of death. And let me just explain that. Um, in Canaanite mythology, Baal um, was the, the storm god. He's actually referred to as the rider on the clouds, you know, a weather deity who brought the, lane, the, the rain and therefore produced the fertility of the land. So, so, you know, he was naturally connected to fertility and to life. So, if he was the bringer of rain, how did they deal with the fact that sometimes it didn't rain? 
just seasonally. I mean, in the summer it rained, in the winter it didn't rain. And this surely was not the first drought that had struck the region. So how did they deal with the fact that sometimes it didn't rain? Well, in their mythology, it works like this. There was Baal, and when it didn't rain, when there was a drought, or when it wasn't the rainy season, then Baal supposedly died. And what Elijah said in the beginning? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. So you can sort of see that poke, you know, at, at Baal as the God who dies, you know, but Yahweh is the God who lives. Um, so in this mythology, he died, and then there was another god called Mot, the god of the dead or the underworld, and, and Baal had to submit to Mot. And he, he was completely helpless for as long as Mot held him captive there. And then in this mythology, there was, uh, he had a consort called Anat, you know, sort of a female goddess, and she had to sort of bust him out of the underworld, you know, save him from death. He couldn't even save himself, okay? So here's, 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 I just want to sort of set this up. Here's, here, if, you, if you remember what I said last time, in, in those days, they thought certain gods had power in certain areas. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had power in Israel. Baal, the God of Phoenicia, had power in Phoenicia. And the gods of Babylon had power in Babylon. And um, we already saw how God is breaking those boundaries. He's saying, no, I don't, there are no physical boundaries to, you know, to me as God. I'm God everywhere. I'm, the word Yahweh means the one who is and the one who causes all else to be. And I was, I'm God everywhere. And he already proved that. So firstly, he, he proves that in Baal's area of expertise, which is rain and lightning and stuff, <laughs> Baal is pretty useless and Yahweh is actually the one calling the shots. So he beats Baal in his own area of expertise. Then he doesn't only do it in Israel, but while there's a drought, remember? Baal's area of expertise, he supposedly brings the rain. While there's a drought in his kingdom, Zarephath was right in his backyard. God announces a drought there, and during the drought provides for Elijah and this widow. Big slap in the face of Baal. Okay? So, so God is, has already proven, and, and, and the message, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, was written to Israelite exiles under captivity in Babylon. And they would be told by the Babylonians, we conquered you because our gods are stronger than your God. And the message of 1 Kings is, no, just like God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is stronger than Baal, and just like when it doesn't rain, a drought is not his absence, like in the Canaanite mythology, it was Baal's absence that brought drought, it's, it's not his absence in death, it's his presence in judgment that brings drought. And it's, it's his presence in judgment that brings exile. It's not because he's weaker than the Babylonian gods that you're in captivity. It's because he's judging you, just like he was judging Ahab and them. Okay? So there are no physical boundaries to God's power and his godness. But, but here's the question now. There was a spiritual boundary to Baal's power. He, when he died and went to the underworld, he was helpless. And was, death was a barrier to Baal. And the question of the narrative is, is there such a spiritual barrier to God's power? Does his power also stay, extend beyond death? Or is he also powerless when it comes to death? That's the question. And the, on, and, and the answer that the text gives is a resounding no. There's no barrier, even spiritual barrier. To God's power. Death is no problem to him. Death is no problem to the living God. Because he's a living God, he overcomes death. And the fact, that's why I call it the test of death. The proof that he is the living God 
is that he's no captive to death like Baal was. Can you see that? The living God is the one who overcomes death. And in fact, the only one who overcomes death. So let's just briefly talk about the cure for death. Our fourth point. This is, as far as I can tell, the very first time in all of Scripture that a resurrection is recorded. I don't know of any other resurrections recorded before this. And, and, and those of you who studied the word will, will know maybe of a, of a principle called the principle of first mention, which basically just says that the first time anything is mentioned, it's quite significant and, and powerful. One example of that is um, the first time blood is mentioned is when Cain kills Abel and the Lord says he... His blood cries out to me from the earth. Very significant. Because whereas the blood of because blood cries out to God. What does blood do? That's the very first time blood is mentioned. It's, it's mentioned as crying out to God. And Abel's blood, innocent Abel who was killed, murdered, his blood cried out for vengeance. But there was another innocent who was murdered, but his blood cried out. Better things than the blood of Abel. Cried out for mercy. But you can see that already in the first mention, the whole teaching was there in seed form. Now, this is the first resurrection recorded in Scripture, which means the first mention, that the truth of every resurrection and of the most important resurrection is already there in seed form. So the boy dies. Elijah takes the boy. And we know it's a boy, not a... Not a teenager or so because his mother carried him so he was obviously a little boy Elijah takes him carries him up where puts him in his bed in the upper room his bed his place of lying so already the idea of substitution is there I put him in my place but it takes him up very interesting to an upper room remember the widow's question and, and, and she says, the, the, the translation here says, um, where, where is it? Have you, uh, what, do you have, uh, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? I don't think that's the best translation. It literally says, have you brought to remembrance my sin and killed my son? In other words, she said, what do you have against me, man of God? You know, before, your presence was to my advantage because it led to the multiplication of the, of the flour and of the, oil, and of the oil. So we had bread and, and we could live. But now, the fact that you're here has drawn God's attention to you and by implication to me. And, and it's brought my sins to remembrance. And now I'm being punished, or my son at least is being punished for my sins. So the widow's question, if I can rephrase it, is does my son have to die for my sins? And Elijah takes him up to the upper room and puts him in his bed in his place. But a few centuries later, in another upper room, another son answers that question. And he says, take, eat. This bread is my body which is broken for you. This cup is my blood which is shed for you. And that other son, the ultimate son, answers the question by saying, It is not your son 
that'll die for your sins. It is God's son that'll die for your sins. Starting to see what's going on here? And then Elijah does something very strange that most of the commentators sort of scratch their heads about. He goes and he stretches himself out three times over the body of this young boy. Now, now some of the, let me just maybe read you, uh, just bring up the Second Kings uh, passage. I think it's the second last, uh, second last slide. Or third. There we go. Um, this is another account of Elisha. Now, Elisha was Elijah's disciple. He took over from Elijah. Okay? And he does something very similar, which, and, and this account actually gives us a bit more detail. It says, Then he, Elisha, got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room. And then he got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. And the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now, obviously, I mean, being Elijah's disciple, he clearly learned this trick from Elijah. <laughs> okay. But some commentators say, no, he was doing mouth-to-mouth, you know, resuscitation. Now, excuse me, but I failed to see how a grown man lying on top of a little boy is going to help the little boy breathe more easily. That's clearly not what's going on, you know. Clearly, this is, you know, symbolic action. And he was doing two things. Number one... Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. He was stretching every part of his body over every part of the boy's body. He was covering the boy. So that if you took a bucket of water and threw it at the boy, it would fall on Elijah. I heard a story once of a general, and this was in wartime, when food was scarce and they were rationing the food. They were running a camp and were running the food stocks, very, you know, rationing them very strictly, and, and food was disappearing out of the food stores, which was a very serious crime in wartime because if you steal food, you actually cause the death of the other people in the camp. So it's very serious, and, and the punishment was very severe. You had to get like something like 30 or 40 lashes with a whip or something like that. So very severe, you know, to obviously discourage people from stealing. And uh, they discovered, you know, food rations were disappearing from the food store. And they did an investigation, a very thorough investigation, and they found that the general of the camp's elderly mother was the one stealing the food. And now he couldn't show favoritism. I mean, the, the punishment for the serious crime was set was like 30 or 40 lashes with a whip. And he, you know, a cat of nine tails, it was a very serious punishment. And he knew this would kill her. She was an old lady. I mean... A grown, healthy man, strong man, could die from 30 or 40 lashes with, with a cat of nine tails. And he knew his mother would most certainly die. But, but, I mean, he couldn't show favoritism. You know, she committed the crime. She had to pay the price. And so they, they tied her, you know, over a table or something. And before they were going to administer the punishment, he took off his shirt and he lay over. He stretched himself out over her. And he took the lashes on his own back. you see what Jesus was doing on the cross for us? He was spiritually speaking, stretching himself over us, covering us, and taking more than just a lashing for us. He was being tortured to death for us in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserved on our behalf. I 
don't know why this picture is in my head, but I, uh, this picture of this, of this general, you know, sort of laying over his elderly mother and the lashes of the whip coming down on his back and him groaning or even screaming in pain. And I just wonder, how did his mother feel? Was that food that she stole worth it? If you can imagine Jesus stretching himself out over you and hear the groans and the screams of his pain as he receives that lashing for you, was that sin really worth it? Was it really worth it to cause one that you love so much, so much pain? Was it really worth it? Is it really worth it? And then, he, wasn't, he didn't only cover the young boy by stretching out over him, but um, there was also an impartation that happened. In, in the Elisha scripture, it says that his body became warm. So, so there's an impartation. And, and, and the same kind of impartation spiritually happens with us when Jesus stretches himself out over us. Not only does he receive the punishment that we deserve for our crimes, for our sins, but he imparts his life to us so that we can also be resurrected like this little boy was. You see that here's a here's sort of a, a, a prophetic contrast with what was going to happen with the ultimate resurrection. The ultimate son who died and was resurrected. And also Elijah, it says, cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard his cry and resurrected the boy. Jesus also cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord did not hear his cry so that he could hear Elijah's and ours. Jesus was not saved so that we can be. And then, very interesting, this widow says, you know, sort of in the last part of this portion, it's, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the, that the word that you speak is the word of the Lord. And you almost want to say to her, now you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> now? <laughs> Only now, <laughs> you know? I mean, what about the last few months and years while you were eating, you know, the bread that was baked from the flour and the oil that was multiplied? You know, didn't, I mean, you were living off that miracle. Now you know? <laughs> I mean, come on. We as charismatics often think if someone can just see a miracle, they will believe. And yet this widow, she was living off a miracle. She and her son. And she was still saying, as the Lord your God lives. Not the Lord my God or the Lord our God. The Lord your God. Miracles don't save you. See, seeing a miracle doesn't save you. Even experiencing a miracle like this widow did doesn't necessarily turn someone's heart to you. You need to see a resurrection. You need to see the Son of God being resurrected. And then you will say, now I know. Now I know that you are the living God and every other God is a dead God. Now I know that even death isn't a boundary to you and that you can save from death. Now I know that no power is too strong for you. No barrier is too big for you to break through. Nothing is too strong for you to, be, to save us from it. Now I know 
Now I know that your word is true and will never fail. Now I know. Now I know. Let's stand. I just, I, I, I know that, that God is speaking to some of you this evening and touching your hearts. And maybe for the first time, maybe you've seen miracles. Maybe you've seen God changing other people. And, and maybe that's why you're here tonight, because you've seen what God has done in other people's lives and through other people's lives. And, and, but maybe you're still saying the Lord your God. As the Lord your God lives. I believe the Lord lives, but He's the Lord your God. He's not yet my God. And, and maybe tonight, for the first time, you're seeing the resurrection. You're seeing that, that death is reversible. It's, 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 it's not the end. You're seeing that, that actually inside of your physical body, there's, a, there's an eternal soul that'll, that'll continue to exist forever. Either in heaven or in hell. And you're seeing that the one, the one who has overcome death, is the living God, the only one. And you're seeing that His Son was resurrected to overcome death. He died. He was stretched out over us, took our place, took our punishment. He died in our place, but then He was resurrected. He overcame death. As we sang, death, where's your sting? The boast of death and sin has been silenced. It's been muzzled. Maybe you're seeing that for the first time. And maybe like this widow of Zarephath, you're ready to say, now I know. Now I know that Yahweh is the living God and that His word is true. And if that's you tonight, I just want us to all close our eyes and just focus on the Lord. And if that's, that's you tonight, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond and just to say to the Lord, Lord, now I know that you are the one you are the one that saves from death. And if that is you, and you feel you want to respond, and you want to experience that resurrection life, you want to say to Jesus, Jesus, come like a, the ultimate Elijah, and come stretch out yourself over me, and save me. Give me new life. Lord, I, I didn't understand why all these people around me in church changed so radically. And I, I want that change, but I'm not experiencing it yet. But now I know. Now I know. It's because I need you to be stretched out upon me. I need to experience your forgiveness. I need to experience your life. Now I know. I need to experience your word inside of me, your spirit inside of me, your breath inside of me, resurrecting me. Now I know.